This week on Black Issues Forum, federal police reform attempts fail, but local talks continue. Our panel weighs in on the debt ceiling and infrastructure funding, and a Duke University building honors one of its first black graduates. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Negotiations for federal legislation on police reform once again halted on September 22nd when Democrats and Republicans failed to reach an agreement. But the fight continues in states and local communities. In North Carolina's own Wake County, attention has been drawn around an investigation into veteran Raleigh police detective Omar Abdullah, who used falsified evidence from a confidential informant, or CI, to jail as many as 15 people. Once District Attorney Lauren Freeman became aware back in February of 2020, she dropped charges on many of the cases and placed the detective, once named Employee of the Year, on administrative leave. At a recent community forum on police reform organized by nonprofit Emancipate NC, community members spoke out demanding justice. For more on this, I want to welcome the executive director of Emancipate NC, Don Blaygrove. Don, so pleased to have you with us today. Always a pleasure to be with, here, with you, Deborah. And I know that there has been an update on the progress on this case. Can you share that with us? Yes. Uh, apparently, early yesterday morning, there was a settlement in this case. A $2 million settlement was reached between the 11 or so plaintiffs and the city of Raleigh, which is a huge victory for, for the folks that were uh, directly impacted, but doesn't go far enough to reach the problem of real police accountability. And I would imagine that community members um, are more than thinking that this is a case of a bad apple in the bushel. How frustrated are people about um, the impact of this specific case and what's happening in their communities overall? People are extremely frustrated. Um, as anyone who watched the forum that Emancipate NC hosted last week, Thursday, you could see and feel the anger and the frustration of the people. It was palpable in the room. Uh, this is not a situation of one bad officer, because just for the record, there were seven other officers cited in the lawsuit. Uh, this is not just one person who went rogue. This is a whole department that needs to be deeply and highly scrutinized. And once again, we are faced with the, the dilemma that police cannot police themselves. And this has been going on for quite some time, the uh, disgruntled kind of position of the community and uh, Wake County and Raleigh uh, policing. What makes this a, an issue for black communities? Well, what makes it an issue for black communities, unfortunately, is systemic and institutional racism that results and shows up in a way that disproportionately impacts black and brown people in our criminal justice system. Uh, all over the country, and North Carolina is no exception, where black people make up only about 24% of the population, we make up more than half of the incarcerated population in North Carolina. As a result, 
any detrimental impacts, any biases that exist within our criminal justice system disproportionately impact Black folks. So any criminal justice issue is a Black issue. And we so often talk about statistics and so forth, but what's, can you kind of share a little bit of what the personal impact is on the lives of these people? I mean, these gentlemen uh, went to jail and there had to be an impact on their lives, their future, and their families. As is detailed in um, the wonderfully drafted pleading for this federal lawsuit, many of these folks, one of these women, one of the people that was arrested was a woman who was arrested only weeks after giving birth to a child. She spent time in jail away from her child right after she had delivered. Another one of these people who were falsely accused was also uh, in the middle of cancer treatments. Many of them, almost all of the 11 folks that were falsely arrested, lost employment, lost income, lost money, when they were um, forced to pay bail bondsmen to get out of jail. Uh, they, the economic impact and the social impact on individual lives when they become justice involved are incalculable. But for these folks in particular, we can see how that system harms them and how they were hurt by bad policing and a failure for a failure on the part of the district attorney to really take seriously her role of holding law enforcement officers accountable and being true to the people. And so there's a call for change. What is uh, emancipate, what is emancipate NC asking for in terms of a change? Oh, we are asking for things that are not groundbreaking, things that at this point should just be common sense. Number one, we are asking that law enforcement officers' records, disciplinary records, be released to the public. We are also asking that Lauren Freeman, who is the district attorney of Wake County currently, take real seriously and look through a very, very scrutinizing lens at cases that are brought to her by Raleigh Police Department. What we know for sure is that there is corruption inside of the Raleigh Police Department, and it is not just one officer. And just for the record, none of these officers have been fired. All of them are still on administrative leave and drawing paychecks. So the reality is that we need to see some serious changes in the way policing happens. We need an independent investigative agency that is dedicated solely to policing the police. We need an independent office inside of the district attorney's office whose jobs it is to solely prosecute law enforcement in a way that is not biased and in a way that keeps the community safe. These are just a few of the things that Emancipate NC is asking How for. quick, I mean, how close are we to getting any of that? How close are you to getting any of that? I can tell you that um, as long as we have been fighting for these things, we are no closer necessarily to getting any of these things in actuality. And the reason for that is very simple. is because there is no political will. We have a district attorney who clearly believes that 
while there are problems in the system, it's not her job to course correct, to fix those problems. We have a district attorney here in Wake County, Lauren Freeman, who is more than happy to put the onus on the General Assembly for changing laws when she knows full well that she has the power within her office and the discretion to make changes that are real and substantive towards creating equity, and she just refuses to do them. And this is local. So we are not we, any closer. We started off, we, we, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, we started off talking about the national effort, the federal federal legislation that's out there. We have just about uh, 30 seconds left. What are your thoughts about any movements on federal legislation for police reform? Well, again, I think that what we saw and the failures that we saw on the federal level all revolved around uh, qualified immunity. We have got to remove from law enforcement this idea that they are untouchable and that they should not be held personally liable for the harm that they cause when they violate the trust of the community. The, oh. the, the failing of the federal law, federal legislation is uh, disgraceful. Well, the community is still waiting for some changes, and let's hope that there will be some changes forthcoming. Don Blaygrove, thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts. Thank you for having me. At the top of news this week, fret over our American debts, both past and future. It is imperative that Congress address the debt limit. If not, our current estimate is the Treasury will likely exhaust its extraordinary measures by October 18th. It would be uh, increased interest on car loans, credit card bills, mortgages, anything you're paying interest on. So this is something that has to be done. We are doing everything we can, and the states and localities well, it's not fast are to get, it, to get it out the door. As I indicated in my opening statement, in response to a previous question, the infrastructure to do this had to be built, and the pace at which there money is getting out the There was plenty of time the for the infrastructure to be set. Our Fed, our Fed programs, our PPP programs, all of those expeditiously got money to people who needed them. This is a complete and abject failure. Thursday night, Congress voted to extend to December 3rd the deadline to make a decision to fund our government activities. We know also the debt ceiling has been in play, as well as two infrastructure packages, a $1.5 trillion roads and bridges package that has bipartisan support and a larger $3.5 trillion Build Back Better infrastructure plan. What's it all really mean for you and me? I want to welcome this week's panel, Dr. Shante Williams, CEO of Black Pearl Global Investment. Dr. Henry McCoy, professor and director of entrepreneurship at North Carolina Central University, and Patrick Hanna of the National Black Caucus of State Legislators Corporate Roundtable. Welcome to all three of you. I want to open up with you, Dr. McCoy. Could you just give us sort of a snapshot of what we're facing as we look at these four areas of political economic concern, the funding of the government, the debt ceiling, the $1.5 trillion package, and the $3.5 trillion package? Yeah, well, great to be uh, with you, Deborah. So just in a snapshot, in terms of the, the funding of the government, so the fiscal year for the federal government goes from October 1st to September 30th, and so that's why we were running up against this incredible deadline, with, of course, today being on the beginning of the fiscal year. And from that standpoint, it's simply a matter of um, continuing to keep the, the government operational. So, you know, um, does it have the resources to pay its employees? And so, uh, you know, if, the, if that um, spending bill for the um, continuing government had not passed, then 
a lot of federal workers would not have been able to show up today. Um, some functions still go, but not all of them. In terms of the debt ceiling, um, you know, of course, that's a situation where um, we as a country have to pay our bills. And so right now, the expectation is that somewhere around the middle of the month, October 18th, uh, that we will run up against that debt ceiling. And uh, if that, if we do not, um, you know, extend it, then we're going to have some issues with paying our bills. And so that certainly is a, a huge issue in this question about will America default on its bills. In terms of the, the two uh, infrastructure, the $1.5 trillion and the $3.5 trillion, it's really um, centered around this difference in philosophy between um, Republicans, Democrats, progressives, moderates, and things of that nature. The $1.5 trillion um, budget really is around those more fundamental things that we think about when we think about infrastructure, roads and bridges and things of that nature. The $3.5 trillion is what um, some folks are calling the social infrastructure bill. So that includes, you know, everything from climate change uh, issues, um, you know, universal pre-K, free community colleges and things of that nature. And so really it's a philosophical debate about what should America be spending their money on. Well, philosophical is right. And, you know, I want to ask you, Patrick, how much of this is gamesmanship? And more importantly, what does it reflect about the cohesion of the Democratic Party? <clears throat> you know, it's an interesting question, Deborah. I think, that, you know, the corporate roundtable is apolitical. And so one of the things we try to do is look at things pretty objectively. But one thing that I think is pretty unique is that the Democrats have control of the executive branch uh, and uh, the legislative branch. And so I think that there is an opportunity uh, to pass meaningful reform on whatever the public policy is a little more swiftly. Yeah, time is of the essence. Uh, as we look at the calendar, 2022 will be in another election year. And so uh, I think they're on the clock to have meaningful reform to get to the people that need it the most because working families are hurting. People need jobs. And the quicker you have these uh, policies that be implemented to increase the debt ceiling, uh, to pass these infrastructure packages to deal with uh, infrastructure such as not only uh, airports and, and waterways and bridges, but also making sure that we have opportunities to uh, introduce new emerging economies so that we can create jobs for the communities that need it the most, such as electronic uh, vehicles and autonomous vehicles. There's a lot of investment going on in those spaces. So I think the time is of the essence. I think that when you have an opportunity uh, to change policy, you should do it swiftly. And do it in a meaningful way because the, the public needs needs the result. Dr. Williams, you know, one of the primary arguments against the larger infrastructure package is that it's fiscally irresponsible. And we also know that if it gets passed, President Biden is planning to pay for this legislation through increased taxes on the wealthy. So what are your thoughts, particularly as a businesswoman? Well, I will say, um, this takes me back to my capitalism class in, in my MBA program, right? So I personally believe uh, taxes are a part of our uh, social contract with each other. So as a business owner, as a businesswoman, I absolutely rely on good infrastructure in the country to make sure that my employees can get there on time, to make sure they have childcare, to make sure that my business has the broadband or whatever, whatever else it needs. Um, the roads are good, so for me, um, yes, it is an expensive bill. It is a high-value bill, but this is what happens when you kick the can down the road continuously. Guess what? The price goes up. You know, the price is now higher, and it's going to take more money and more taxes from those who have been paying less over time and benefiting from tax cuts. So. 
for me, it's it's a good thing. I think um, we need to pass this bill, and we'll probably need another one soon. I mean, if we just look at the condition of our neighborhoods, look at the condition of business investment in the U.S., look at the condition of research, we need those tax dollars. We need this kind of a capital infusion into all of these areas to make sure that, you know, America continues to grow and thrive. Let me get you your thoughts on this, uh, Dr. McCoy. You know, we talk about 1.5 trillion, 3.5 trillion, but when we drill down to where this hits us at home, here in North Carolina, here in our communities, you know, we as black people, as citizens, you know, wh what are we really uh, agitating for or needing in these f infrastructure bills that maybe people aren't quite thinking about? Well, I think, um, I mean, I think Dr. Williams gave a great um, point um, in, in terms of the idea that you know, there is a, essentially a social contract that historically has been between, um, you know, business owners, uh, even the general public, and the idea of paying taxes to support this infrastructure uh, that is America. For many, many years, um, and even continuing today, I mean, we know that, that African Americans, black folks in America have not seen equal kind of investments in the community and the neighborhoods and things of that nature. And so there's really a, a, a long debt that is old. And so what we see in this larger um, $3.5 trillion package around this kind of social infrastructure really speaks to this idea of, you know, are there ways to invest in communities that otherwise have not been getting this access to capital? So we may be talking about, you know, HBCUs who, you know, really for the first time in a very long time have gotten some federal funds this past year, but it's still not enough. I mean, you can't go decades without investing and then all of a sudden put some resources in. Uh, we're talking about things like um, free community college, which we know African-Americans end up having higher um, levels of, of student loan debt than any other group. Um, and that in, impacts things like wealth creation, job creation, being able to buy homes, being able to send your own kids to college. We're talking about universal pre-K, um, things of that nature. And so these are things that really um, speak to this idea of what the black community needs. And as um, uh, you know, Mr. Hanna said, it also speaks to these new emerging technologies and things of that nature. And so this really is something that is uh, and can be uh, very instrumental in terms of moving the black community forward. But Absolutely. again, it's a, it's a and, bit um, old. And, and I want to get to also talking about how we get the reform, how we as a nation get this kind of reform passed, Patrick. Um, there's talk about reconciliation and uh, kind of a reluctance to move that direction. If we, if the Democrats go toward re reconciliation to get this legislation passed, what's the cost? What, what, what happens? What's the damage? Yeah, you know, I think Dr. McCoy makes a good point and, and this interesting question that, you know, oftentimes we don't really pay attention to some of the rhetoric that's going on in Washington, but we focus on really what's important in our households. And so, uh, the, you know, the national debt is over $26 trillion today. We, we, we printed over $6 trillion in the last 12 months due to COVID. And so I think when, when Black America sees that in particular, you're you recognizing that, hey, there's money that's being printed, but it's not showing up in your mailbox due to various reasons. So some of the challenges with, with, with how government works is also frustrating, and you hear words such as reconciliation, but the general public probably has no understanding of what that actually means. What, what really is important is how do we close this wealth gap, right? How do we close the wealth gap from the standpoint of the haves and the have-nots? And I think that's really where we are today. It's trying to understand how do we create jobs for our community closing the wealth gap and also deal with so many systemic and disparities issues within the black community. Absolutely. 
some monumental changes taking place in our nation and here at home. Duke University recently announced it would rename its West Campus Sociology Psychology Building after one of the first five black undergrads admitted to the university. The Reuben Cook Building is named after Wilhelmina Reuben Cook, who was a civil rights activist while on campus and went on to become a distinguished attorney and professor of law. She passed away in 2019 and is the first black woman to have a Duke University campus building named for her. This act seemed to follow a trend of sorts recently in Raleigh, a middle school formerly named after Josephus Daniels, the NNO publisher and editor who was instrumental in inciting the, the Wilmington race riots and newly named Oberlin Magnet Middle to honor the Oberlin neighborhood that was originally settled by free blacks. <clears throat> of course, just about a month ago, the huge statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee was removed in Richmond, Virginia. So, Dr. Williams, are these moves symbolic or are they reflective of a new understanding? Well, I absolutely think they're symbolic. Um, I'm not really sure what new understanding people have arrived at. I think these are the kind of moves that can easily uh, be given to the public to say, hey, we understand, we get it, but I can tell you no one gained wealth because a statue came down. Um, that's not to say I don't think they should be taken down or uh, should not be—buildings uh, shouldn't be renamed, but I do think— um, in the larger conversation, these are very, very minor um, nibbles around the edges that are given to the public um, and held up as a triumph, and they really aren't uh, substantial. And when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and this being like a step toward inclusion, uh, Dr. Williams, you know, what kind of substantive real change do we want to see? Well, substantive real change means, you know, change the name of the building and then uh, enable more scholarships. It means make more investments into the surrounding community. It means get into that community and start doing the work. That's what equity and inclusion means. It means even look at your internal uh, hiring practices and make sure that you're retaining employees and promoting employees. Um, it shouldn't just be one building. There should be several buildings. Um, think about your curriculum. You have to look at, you know, inclusive education, inclusive spaces for all of us in a very different way. And it means we have to do more than just change the name. It's a, it's a surface level thing. If we're going to, if we're going to really take these steps, then we should be investing money. We should be looking at curricula. We should be digging deeper um, into the conversation and amplifying those voices that have uh, historically not been amplified, not just by naming them on buildings, but allowing them a voice in changing policy. Well, Dr. McCoy, what are your thoughts on this symbolic, substantive change? Look, I don't know that I can uh, say anything better than uh, what Dr. Williams just said, but I, 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 I really agree. I think that certainly it's a, it's a step, right? I mean, the idea of, of changing the name, but, you know, what about actually educating folks about who that person was, right? Why do they deserve to have their name on the building? Because uh, I think that needs to be part of it as well. But in addition to that, everything Dr. Williams said, I think we got to get to the root of the issue around wealth um, creation and, and opportunity. So I think it's a step, but it's not, um, you know, it's not enough. And I think that, you know, you make a point about educating people about who this woman was, and that goes back to what gets taught in our, you know, K-12 schools. You know, Patrick, you know, I'll, I'll ask you the same question. I would imagine you might have the same thing to say about renaming buildings and the importance of inclusion in what we teach in our, in our public schools. 
Yeah, it's, it's a good good point, Deborah. And, you know, I, I think it, it really depends on which buildings we, we are renaming and what institutions as a as an HBCU double grad from Morehouse College and Law School at North Carolina Central University. I'm, I'm real proud to see uh, leaders that have impacted our struggle uh, on the side, on the names on the buildings. But I think that the premise of the question is, when you look at some of the issues related to the intersectionality with large land-grant institutions and the connection with slavery and the connection that some of the private sector has identified and acknowledged, I think really the question really becomes, what's the objective of making the change, right? If you're making the change just to make the change without creating substantive investment into closing those systemic divides, it's really not going to be impactful. So I think you have to hold uh, large institutions accountable, and particularly universities that, that have these wonderful uh, tenure programs that Dr. McCoy can talk about, <laughs> especially in our large land-grant institutions. So renaming a building, I think, is a good thing. But I think the next chapter needs to be, what are you going to do after that? You know, I'll say this quote that always gives me a lot of perspective, uh, Deborah. Dr. Manchin used to always say is at the end of the day, people won't remember what you said or what you did. They will remember how you made them feel. And so the question really becomes, when we talk about holding universities accountable and large institutions for making these changes, how does that make us feel as a community? Because I think that's where we really can lean in and hopefully come up with some change to make uh, hold these institutions accountable. It's a very poignant uh, thought because the changes that we make um, do have to, you know, have an impact on our emotions. And I think about what it means for us to, to lose this information in a certain way. If a name is being removed, are we removing that history as well? How do we make sure that we maintain the story, remain, maintain the history so that we don't forget? And the reason we don't want to forget is because we don't want to repeat it. Dr. Shante Williams, Dr. Henry McCoy, Patrick Hanna, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to thank today's guests, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum, or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.